0: Hey, it's Jess Massa. Thanks for listening to this episode of WTF Health. All this talk about the future of health is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Transparent, OneDrop, Wheel, Pfizer, Vita Health, Utopia, 120 over 80 marketing, and Bayer G4A. And don't forget, if you want to check out the video version of this interview, head on over to my YouTube channel. That's at youtube.com slash WTFHealth. Hey everybody, it's Jessica DeMassa with WTF Health. What's the future of health? I am talking to the who's who of health tech and healthcare innovation. And today we are kicking off a brand new special series. We're calling it our Virtual Care Regulatory Roundup and it's sponsored by our friends at Wheel. Wheel is the health tech company powering the virtual care industry and they provide companies with everything they need to launch and scale virtual care services, including the regulatory infrastructure to deliver high quality and compliant care. And the reason we're going to do this is that we can all keep up to date on what's going on in the dynamically changing climate of regulatory affairs, health policy, and reimbursement when it comes to virtual care. We all need to know this stuff. And so we are checking in with experts monthly to get a state of play and find out what's going on. And our first expert here to help us out is Nate Lactman. He is a partner at Foley & Lardner, and he runs their national digital health and telemedicine practice there. He's also on ATA's board, so great person to kick this conversation off with Nate. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Hi Jess, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you.
0: I am so excited to talk about this because I think like I mean especially after the pandemic, we've all kind of gone through a lot in health tech and virtual care as far as trying to keep up with how things are changing, what things are going to stick, what things are going to go away now that the pandemic is waning. And so I'm happy to kick off this conversation with you and just check in. So why don't you just jump in for us Nate like give me a little bit of a state of play particularly when it comes around some of the regulations that we've got our eyes on what are you hearing you know from your post as partner at Foley and Lardner like about you know what's happening with cross-state licensure with originating sites some of the stuff that we love to talk about in terms of you know uh eligible practitioners you know some of this stuff like what's what's happening right now
1: sure well right now it's um Monday at 2.30 Eastern time, which means there's about two and a half hours less left before HHS may or might not issue a letter saying, we're gonna non-renew the public health emergency. I, I'm gonna put a marker down, and I think they're gonna not uh, expire it in July, which means we'll have at least 150 days from now. And that really has been one of the big things that a lot of companies are talking with us about is what is gonna happen, or what should we do post PHE waivers? These last like two and a half years have been a sandbox of experimentation. A lot of the laws and rules that were so uh, ingrained in the healthcare industry just went out the window. No co-pays, right? All these sorts of like prizes, win a million dollars if you get a COVID vaccination, like things that you just can't do (laughs) normally, they've been allowed. Um, Virtual, no license required, uh, all of these different things. So we've been able to experiment. Thus far, I have not seen any evidence of like significant uh, people getting hurt or um, healthcare uh, like, like uh, failures in the quality, which is really great. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to learn from those lessons um, in the post-PHE environment. So we're talking a lot with clients about how to prepare for this transition of care because the public health emergency will at some point end.
0: So what is like we're, we're take that conversation the next step. So how are you helping prepare? Like, what is your advice here on 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 this as far as preparing for that? Okay, so here we have this deadline looming later today, but let's say it gets extended for 150 days. You know, it's like 100 day, 151. We're back in the same spot. It gets extended again. Like, how how are businesses, specifically those who are in virtual care, expected to you know plan for what's ahead? And like, what is your best advice?
1: Yeah. I think um, the harder part for a virtual care company with uh, these in, uh, imposing ends of the waivers is balancing out patient continuity of care. That's what they're all about. I mean, if you weren't in healthcare, you wouldn't have these issues known as patient abandonment, which is when you say, "I can't care for you anymore," and you haven't given the patient enough notice to find an alternative uh, alternative doctor. Uh, so, if it was just widgets or bottled water, we'll say, "Sorry, we're out of so that flavor." Um, it's not allowed. So balancing that out and and recognizing that these companies exist to help patients in the first place, it's like integrally tied to their mission is important. So first one is licensing, right? Um, A lot of states have already rolled back their licensing. That's on a state by state level, not a federal level. So I think that to the extent that you are doing services across multiple states and still availing yourself of a licensure exception, you need to say, well, what's going to happen? Do I get my doctor's license? Or do I say, hey, patient, you cannot, we can't treat you virtually anymore. If you're in a border state and your catchment areas like that, maybe the patients will come in person. If not, then you look to see well, what exceptions to medical licensure are there? Because I am practicing medicine, but maybe I can avail myself of an exception. And there are a number of them for pre-existing doctor-patient relationships, for follow-up care, for peer-to-peer consults, for emergencies for just like even one-off some some have like oh if it's on an occasional or infrequent basis or if it's for free and so it doesn't meet every single company's business model but there are a number that do so that's a licensure bucket i think yeah. i am not bullish on a, some sort of federal national not. implemented. no <laughs> i think there's 10th amendment and states rights implications that have constitutional uh, constitutional analysis that goes far beyond healthcare and all sorts of regulated or licensed professions from just home builders to health insurance companies to you know nail technicians Um, and I think it would really upend the entire revenue generating and localization of oversight on all of these different state models not saying it's impossible the sports licensure clarification act happened which allowed it for sports medicine it's like the sports are cool act oh (laughs) really
0: I, I don't know about this one what is this real quick
1: yeah, I think it was 2018. They basically said, hey, if you're an athletic trainer or a doctor who has a contract with an athlete or a team or something like that, you can travel with that team um, just being licensed in one state. And it supersedes any state license. It was actually an uh, example of federal preemption over states' rights on a medical licensure if you as a doctor are tied to sports somehow. So there is precedent for it.
0: Okay, well that's interesting. We'll have to keep our eye on that. So you're not bullish on state licensure. What about some of the other things that were, were you know waived during COVID, the originating site stuff or any of the other like non physician practitioner, you know, some of those things. I mean, what are your what's your sentiment on what's gonna happen there moving forward?
1: Um, I, I feel confident that the Medicare originating site to those type of restrictions will eventually go away. Thus, uh, the concern, obviously, is that utilization uh, would go up and it would be a budget buster. We have not yet seen that um, anywhere. In fact, uh, already, while telehealth visits spiked for Medicare beneficiaries, they, they went down. They're still like 38X pre-COVID, but it shows it's not an unlimited, unmanageable spend for the Medicare program when you had your interview with Roy Schoenberg uh, a few weeks ago, he he did a great remark about saying we shouldn't carve arbitrary fences into our own backyard. And I think that's a really great way to illustrate what these originating site restrictions are. They're largely immaterial these days. They were uh, derived out of the Hersa's pilot program years ago for why to have telehealth in the first place. So with Hersa rural, that's why they selected a rural patient population. And so it was almost like this conventional wisdom just passed forward without people really thinking. Well, why are we having this in the first place? I, I'm confident that uh, there will be a solve for that. If in the interim, then you'll just have to do a, uh, a notice to the patient that they may be financially responsible out of pocket. Interesting. Okay. So that's the payment. I think on the prescribing. You have primarily prescribing of controlled substances, which remains an issue. In the last five years, a number of states have changed their laws, which previously prohibited telemedicine prescribing of controls, to expressly allow it. Uh, I don't have the total, we have 50 state memos, I don't have it memorized, but I'd say only about a dozen states or so may uh, actually prohibit the practice or impose significant material limitations to render it essentially impossible, um, which is a large swath of the population that could avail themselves of it. It's the DEA. Uh, it's the Reinheit Act and DEA uh, controlled substance registration. An in-person exam has been waived. That is scheduled to end when the PHE ends. And so a number of companies that are prescribing controls without having done it in person need to find ways to sort of pull the lever to have that one initial threshold in-person exam between the patient and the prescriber.
0: That's interesting. And I think, yeah, we've seen a lot of news around that lately in certain areas of healthcare, And so it'd be interesting to see how that continues to unfold. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts on what's going on with the reimbursement landscape, because, I mean, we, we saw a lot of reimbursement at parity. We saw a lot done as far as remote patient monitoring over um, and then as well as like, you know, things involving asynchronous care versus synchronous care. So I'm curious about, you know, in terms of, of payment for virtual care, I mean, what what do you think is ahead for us here?
1: I don't anticipate a significant retraction from the payers post-PHE, and that makes me happy. So yeah. I probably yeah, I've been like, gosh, I used to make this analogy when I was like speaking about this uh, topic, it was like, you could have the, the best Ferrari, but if there's no gasoline, it's not going to go anywhere. <laughs> and, and that's really was something that inhibited te- hospitals and other providers from from purchasing or investing in telemedicine. Um, I don't, I think that the, the payers see the value of it. Uh, I, so I, I am not as fearful. In fact, behind the scenes, I've probably written about half a dozen bills that got signed into law for telehealth commercial insurance coverage. And um, nobody's been reaching out to ask for help on that uh, in the last couple of years, probably because the states that did it temporarily, a number of them made it permanent. Okay. And those that didn't make it permanent, the market reacted like it should with the uh, consumers on the patient side, as well as the employer side and the health plan saying, okay, this is what you want, we'll give it to you. And it worked out just fine on the overall med spend. I don't see, other than maybe some short technical coverage of certain rules, I don't see it going away. If you had to say what's mostly on the bubble, it's the audio only. Coverage Ah. for audio only is not universally agreed upon even within the telemedicine industry, both for um, how casual a phone call can be like from a clinical perspective, as well as how frequent and and heavy of a lift uh, medically should be justified to pay for it. Just a two or three minute phone call. Nobody's going to pay for that. Yeah. What if it was like a 15 versus a 25?
0: Okay, that's really interesting. Okay, so the duration of that as well in terms of just how long you're interacting with the patient. I want to know your thoughts on some of the business models that are starting to really take hold here, um, as a result, like, of the pandemic. I mean, because you've been around for a long time, Nate. I've seen you at, how many hymns ago have we had, had we met? I mean, and you followed along in this space and I mean, really helped kind of grow it up with us. And I'm curious, you know, on your take, as far as the market is concerned and what you're seeing out there uh, among the, not only the health tech, virtual care entrepreneurs, but also the incumbent organizations that are starting to become more and more omni So I'm curious about, you know, the way that you're watching some of these business models unfold. I mean, omnichannel, I feel like has been the phrase of the year, like this past year, especially. And so what do we need to know, like from what you're seeing, like, what are some of the, some The opportunities and issues, maybe around that omni channel model that we might not be thinking about as we do our business?
1: Sure. I mean, I I like the concept of omni channel, right? Just, but it's in some ways, it's just a digitized equivalent of what uh, a hospital becoming a health system. Oh, let's have a rehab unit, let's have a SNF, let's have home health, let's have pharmacy, and we'll just do all, all things. And I don't know if I personally believe in like being a factotum, all things to all people, doesn't necessarily mean that each one of those things is best in class. I prefer someone or company says, let me just choose one or two things and just be awesome at it. Just be excellent. And then if you merge into another company that you can then create this like collection of excellence. That's my personal take. Okay. What I'm seeing a lot more among the companies in telemedicine is uh, continued interest in DTC, of course, but not like, oh, let's just do another urgent care alternative or let's just do another hair loss or... Um, Erectile dysfunction <laughs> alternative. The, there are established companies that have got that very well dialed in. Um, I do still see a lot of uh, legs for async and DTC, but we're seeing now for click and mortar. So, companies that started out as virtual only, now they're creating in areas where they have a high patient population, uh, physical locations, so that they can do more, a more fulsome scope of services. So it's like the opposite from the playbook where, oh, I'm, I'm a traditional medical practice and I'll put up a sign on like the street corner and maybe I'll now offer telehealth to my patients. It was like we're telehealth only, but now we're moving in onto your turf. I love that because then you could say, well, that's virtual first or whatever. But those are the examples of the companies that are taking some of the best of the best for e-commerce, consumerism oriented plays of like delightful user experience with like, once you make a brick and mortar, the expectations of a patient as consumer walking in, I think they're just naturally higher. They see around that like, there's clinic stuff, there's blood pressure cuffs, yeah. and they expect a more traditional experience, but wrapped in this uh, co- uh, consumer oriented vibe. That's going to be great. It also allows you to make your capital expenditures more strategically rather right. than placing a bet that, oh, L.A. sounds like it might work. You already have. ISP addresses from people who went to your website but didn't convert to patients, as well as your existing patient population. It's a better play. I think you're also going to see much more on that DTC async. I want to hear yeah, I was, like, was, was going
0: to ask you. Like, what do you what do you see there? Because like I, async, I feel like is like starting to have its moment. Like, it's not quite there yet, but I feel like it's. I've, I've been hearing it come up more and more. So, what do you have your eye on there?
1: Yeah, like December 2018, I gave this opening speech at a conference and it was the, my theme was like DTC async is going to eat your lunch it's better than um, phone call or this interactive audio video and I got like booed by the uh, <laughs> audience right and they're like what are you talking about, but I still firmly believe you do a, a, a robust uh, online medical intake process. Couple that with high resolution photos if it's derm or lab results or diagnostics or a software as a medical device built into the phone, which all of these technologies do exist. And then you have a way to have the patient oriented intake where she doesn't get white coat syndrome because she's taking her time. And then you're validating the veracity with external clinically relevant medical information in the form of labs or whatnot. It gives the doctor even more information than what she would have had in a normal, just a video interaction like we are today. And I think it's proven up in the last four years that a lot of these DTC companies cracked that nut and figured it out. So what are they gonna do at this next stage is two things. One, they're gonna have more of like a house visit element for phlebotomists and, yep. and um, at-home test kits and stuff to obtain that clinical information and become more omni-channel, so to speak. But they're also gonna push to AI. I, I, I think that async is just a stepping stone to full AI automation. It's not there yet. Um, it takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of ethics and structure and whatnot. But I do think that is the end game. Some of the stuff that we get to see working with clients behind the scenes does blow my mind that I, I'm like, I, don't, I didn't think this stuff existed even in beta. So I, I'm very excited for that. The, the threat or the biggest concern is, will this take the human being aspect, the, the clinician professional out of medicine? And some, a lot of people say, well, medicine is an art. You could say laws and art, but I think even art, right, they have processes and you can dial in stuff. You can have standardization and efficiencies. Why? Because we have a fundamental supply, demand, balance in our country for all, if you take all the clinicians who are available and all the patients, that's still not enough to match. And so what is our best available tool to try to bridge it this is the use of technology to scale that and, uh, um, and try, to, try to make that fit.
0: Curious too about your your take on in terms in this idea of scaling technology. I feel like. We're seeing a lot more infrastructure, telehealth infrastructure companies. And I, you know, I mentioned Real, who's, who's supporting this series, and, and they're, they're known in that space, but there are a number of others. You mentioned Amwell. I mean, there's a, there are quite a few, and even beyond those, that are providing, you know, telehealth as infrastructure to other companies, other health tech companies, other virtual care companies, some of those click and order clinics that you mentioned, and even incumbent organizations. What's your take on the infrastructure set of, of, of health tech businesses?
1: I love it. And I think it's just a further evidence of the timeline of the maturation of our industry, Mm -hmm. right? When I first got into it, there was like a few big telemedicine companies and then just a lot of like academic use of telemedicine. Um, And those were sort of the be all end alls. But then you had this proliferation of all these kind of startups and, and whatnot changing it. And that's good. Competition is good. It used to be telemedicine against in-person, right? But now the industry got large enough that they were competing against one another. And then now the infrastructure plays say, hey, look, we're gonna take some of the complicated stuff and make it, uh, you can outsource it, All right? You can't outsource everything, but what this allows, has allowed to happen is startup companies, people with an idea to do something new and different, they can grow and flourish way faster than before. So it, it that coupled with the COVID waivers and the uh, just a lot amount of money in venture with the market uh, overperformance was this confluence of like different events that gave birth to a ton of telemedicine digital health startups that wouldn't otherwise have been able to be there. So you gave an example for like cl- uh, clinicians and staffing and infrastructure. There's another one I think. Um, Well, I won't mention any companies, but there are these headless EMRs that you interviewed someone about recently, which that did not exist three years ago. No! (laughs) The telemedicine company, they're busy enough trying to say, how do I have the service model be new and different and let people know about it? But why are they having to build their own EMRs over and over and over? I love this vision. Um, If we get a, here's a brass ring, okay? (laughs) If a company comes out there to have a front end um, to do real-time patients benefit checks, all the patient has to do is type in her like group ID and health insurance, and it will say like immediately if it's covered or not with that telemedicine company. And if so, what is the copay? That would be lights out game changer because then it takes all these retail plays, which has price anchoring, five, ten, fifteen dollars, whatever, and turns it that into the same experience for a copay. All these cash only companies will then be much more comfortable moving to in network and uh, people will avail themselves of their health insurance. That company or that technology doesn't exist yet. Right. I'm waiting for it to come out.
0: All right, that's cool. I like that. That's a good one. I, it all goes back to payments. It all goes back to payments. <laughs> all right, I wanna get a, a, a couple last pieces of, of insight from you. And so I wanna know like, okay, you've been in this space for a long time, watched it evolve. Like we were just talking about some of the things that didn't exist before that exists now. You know, like. But but we're still evolving. These waivers can go away. You know, things are still very dynamic. What keeps you up at night in terms of like, oh my god, the future of telehealth is in complete jeopardy? If dot dot dot.
1: Oh gosh, I don't. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I I what keeps me up at night really is actually just enthusiasm and excitement. I don't. Oh my gosh, Nate. (laughs) I know it sounds silly, but I don't look at the world through like a lens of like fear mongering. I think that companies should know that they're. Um, not like here's the ten things to be worried about, right? Uh, because to every problem there is a solution and, and most of the stuff out in healthcare it, it's problems to be solved, not dilemmas that have no, no solve. Um, so I do think information siloing is a problem. so you know my firm we have a blog that we put like all these different legal updates and there we give the full answer, link the primary source and it's free right And so I think if we see more content of that, it gets the entrepreneurs founders or executive operators comfortable that what they're doing is legal and compliant um so i guess if i had a concern it's that if we have too much like non-compliance right just too many reckless business models which would violate for example anti-kickback statutes stark law like basic fraud and abuse of the healthcare industry pipes um it the regulators won't care how amazing or unique or clinically beneficial it is, if they'll just say your entire company's growth was built on illegal kickbacks. And I look at that as a shortcut that is tempting because there are so many rules in healthcare. If you break those rules, of course you're gonna grow faster than the other competition who's not breaking the rules. Right. The problem is, it's a time-limited success. At some point, they'll hire someone like my law firm or whatnot to look under the hood and they'll say, this isn't right, we have to change it. Or we won't invest in you, or we will, if you make the changes, does that change how we, the valuation, like the growth rate, you know, and that has nothing, that's just a private enterprise growth, has nothing to do with an outside government regulator or patients filing class action lawsuits. So I do think it behooves the entrepreneurs to say, look, let's measure twice before we scale. Why? Because in e-commerce and digital health, you scale so fast. That's one of the exciting parts of it. But if there is like a little error or a gap, that error then is replicated tens of thousands of times over and over, which means the stakes are higher for any little mistake. So I know people want to move fast, and I think you can and should move fast in healthcare. There's a sense of urgency, but I think the entrepreneur should, and establish incumbents as well, find business models that are legally compliant and then add your own flavor on new, doing something new and different, that is a, a secret sauce to success.
0: Okay, I love that. All right, last thing for you then, leave us on a positive note here. You know, not only like, you know, what could go wrong and how to mitigate against that, but like, I mean, like you said, energy and enthusiasm keeps you up at night. And so like, energize and enthousi- and, and help um, make enthusiastic the rest of us with like some some parting words here. Like, I mean, you're you're in this space and it's you have a very interesting perspective to me because you are on the legal side of things. So it's like, is there any one thing that we should know As health tech entrepreneurs, as those who are working to make virtual care stick broadly, is there one thing that we should know or do to to help kind of you know get out of our own way and help advance the cause and mass and help kind of forward this continuation of the the you know digitization of healthcare you know to benefit all? I mean, inspire us, Nate.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you can do it. If you're a would-be entrepreneur or if you're like already in the mix, you can do it. There are business models and uh, clinical and legal and payment solutions that work and are designed to comply with all the laws of all 50 states be cost effective and scalable just find them and use them don't um, le- don't like throw up your hands at a fear there's really only four fundamental things that i think make a successful telemedicine company right meaningful to its users whether you're like a software the clinician's user or the patient or both uh, clinically appropriate right it's got to be good medicine legally compliant so you follow the rules and you can survive and then scalable so that yeah. you can duplicate it, or other people can essentially copy what you're doing, and more and more people can benefit from this idea. If you just have those four things, everything else will fall into place. I know there's like, oh, the market's going down and, and uh VC Twitter is blowing up all the sphere. Look, the founders and venture are different different units who are sometimes work in the same. But you don't need, especially with all these infrastructure plays and turnkey solutions. You don't need to raise a ton of venture capital to start your idea and make it great. In addition, the last like five years or so have really given birth to a number of other health tech entrepreneurs who had some exits or took some off the table. They're going to be able to reinvest those into seeds of new companies and voices of unique and diverse people who haven't yet filtered up on the VC spectrum. I think we're going to see like a second wave in the next few years of different types of founders targeting different areas within digital health that we haven't yet seen. And that I'm really looking forward to.
0: I am too, you did a great job inspiring us. I'm fired (laughs) up. That's awesome. Nate, thank you so much. It's like, this I I was really excited to speak with you because I really just wanted to get your take on what was going on broadly on more of the policy, legal reimbursement side of things. But talking to you about business model and talking to you about what you see as far as these trends about what's coming next, love having that perspective. Thank you so much for stopping by and sharing that with us.
1: Oh, thank you for having me. This was a blast.
0: All right, awesome. Well, Nate... Thank you again. Thanks to our friends at Wheel for sponsoring this conversation specifically about what's happening in virtual care. I think we definitely got our money's worth with this one. (laughs) I am Jessica DeMoss. And for more interviews with the people who are changing the way that we do healthcare in and out of virtual care, I cover other stuff too, um, head on over to my YouTube channel. It's over there at youtube.com slash WTF Health. Once again, thanks to Nate Lachman. He's with, he's a partner at Foley and Lardner. It's Runs their telehealth and digital medicine practice nationally, and he's also on the board of ATA, who we love. And thanks again. We
1: appreciate your time. Hey, it's Jess. If you're looking for more
0: news on what's going on in health tech, I've got another show airing on this channel called Health Tech Deals. In this one, famous healthcare curmudgeon Matthew Holt joins me twice a week to weigh in on the biggest funding deals, M&A activity, and exits in health tech. Just look for episodes labeled Health Tech Deals.